So, <clears throat> due to uh, some unexpected circumstances, I'll be covering for Pastor Ron today. Uh, so this morning we'll continue in the same chapter of the confession as last week. Last week we started chapter 8. And so this will be part 2 of uh, chapter 8. Uh, I'll be continuing where I left off last week, starting from paragraph 4. So in your handout you'll be able to follow through. We're down at paragraph 4. And I'll be going from four all the way to the end. <clears throat> now, uh, by, by way of introduction, I, I want to stress the importance of the topic of Christ as mediator. The concept of someone standing between opposing persons as spokesman or as reconciler. That's what mediation is. And this concept of mediation is a central one in the Old Testament. Uh, you see this a lot with the sacrifices, right, with the priesthood. In human relations, uh, a champion, for example, could come between armies and represent his people. You see this in 1 Samuel 17, 4 through 10, with someone like Goliath. Goliath coming in and representing the Philistines. Um, and in divine and human relations, uh, a leader such as Abraham could negotiate with God for the sparing of the city, which you see this kind of thing going on in Genesis 18. This was an act of mediation. Also, a father such as Job could intercede with sacrifices for his family. You remember that in uh, Job 1.5. More often, though, it was kings, priests, and prophets who took this middle position of mediation. The king embodied the people at times, and represented God to them. You see this in Psalm 93.1. Priests, on the other hand, were consecrated to offer sacrifices of reconciliation on behalf of people. A kind of sacrificial transaction that depended upon the high priest who entered yearly into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for sins for his people. You see this a lot in Leviticus. Um, Israel itself was to be, uh, in a sense, a kingdom of priests, to channel the blessings of God to all peoples in the world. So again, you see through these examples this concept of mediator or mediation. And then we have the prophets who had to constantly remind the nation of its vows of obedience to God and deliver God's word to them. And often it was words of judgment and sometimes it was words of hope. And so you would have prophets representing God in speaking God's words to God's people. One of the greatest examples of mediator is Moses. He stood between the people and God, receiving the commandments on which their covenant was based on and seek, seeking God's mercy on their behalf when the commandments and covenants were often broken by Israel. And you see this in Exodus, you see this in Deuteronomy. The Greek word used for mediator in the New Testament has several ideas. Primarily, it meant a peacemaker who came between two uh, contestants, a negotiator who established a certain relationship, or some neutral person who would guarantee an agreement reached between uh, two parties. The term is used of Moses in a negative sense. You see this in Galatians 3.19 all the way through 28. There, uh, in that passage, Paul stresses the preeminence of the promise given to Abraham by grace over the law which was instituted through the mediator, Moses, when the people feared meeting God face to face. 
In 1 Timothy 2.5, the term is used in a positive sense to designate Christ as the only mediator. We see this here on the screen, 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, Christ Jesus. This passage emphasizes not only the uh, not only that the legalities of the law or the ministrations of a priest are no longer necessary, but also that sinners now have only one way of coming before God. And this is only if they're mediated through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, and him alone. And hopefully as we finish up this chapter in our confession, you'll see the beauty of Christ and his uniqueness and unique qualities that make him our great Lord and make him worthy of all praise because of his unique qualities uh, that fit as the only possible and perfect mediator between us and God. So hopefully that'll stir up some love and affection towards Christ, you know, as we go through this. And I pray that even as we go through some of the facts that we're going to be talking about, um, that you would let it sink into your heart and uh, that it would allow you to appreciate uh, Christ Jesus as our mediator. Uh, so getting into the confession, last, last week we didn't get quite through paragraph four, so let's, let's discuss that now. Uh, can someone read paragraph four? The Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office. To discharge it, he was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserve and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. He was crucified and died and remained in a state of death, yet his body did not decay. On the third day, he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered. In this body, he also ascended into heaven, where he sits at the right hand of his Father, interceding. He will return to judge men and angels at the end of the age. Thank you. <clears throat> so last week we talked a little about the covenant agreement between the Father and the Son. And the agreement, or covenant, was that Jesus was to enter flesh as a man. And as a man he was to live under the weight of the covenant of works. Uh, and this is another way of saying that he was to live under the law. He was to fulfill the law on behalf of those whom the Father has elected and, at the end, bear the punishment in which the elect deserve. In this, he would be the mediator by uh, taking their sins upon himself and reconciling them with the Father. He was to be the substitute for sinners and the firstborn of new creation. The reward for this pact, this covenant, is the kingdom of God, the new heavens and the new earth. Now, in this paragraph of the confession, we read uh, that the Lord Jesus most willingly undertook this office of mediator. So the willingness is evident in Christ, now carrying out the covenant agreement and doing so not out of obligation, but doing this willingly. And you can see this willingness in Christ uh, when we read this messianic psalm, Psalm 40, verse 7 through 8. Can someone read that? Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, your law is within my heart. Thank you. 
there was a delight to do the will of the Father. We see that. We see all, all kinds of passages also in the New Testament that speaks on Christ laying his life down. So Jesus himself said, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. You see this in John 10, 18. Also in Hebrews 12, 2, we read, For the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Uh, Christ undertook this office not only most willingly, but you see in that passage in Hebrews that he did it joyfully. This was the joy that was set before him. He willingly undertook the office in order that he might discharge or carry out the mission in completion. And to discharge his office, there are various things that Christ had to do. In order to carry out this task, we see in the confession that Christ had to be born under the law. And we read this in Galatians 4.4. 4. Uh, can someone read that? Thank you. Calvin uh, said of Galatians 4.4, he says this, Christ, the Son of God, who might have claimed to be exempt from every kind of subjection, became subject to the law. So we, we see that Christ, not being subject to that at all, s- submitted himself under the law of God as a man. And we might ask, what law or what uh, aspect of the law is Paul referring to that Christ had to submit to? Well, Calvin says, but Paul speaks of the law with all of its appendages. We understand that Christ was under all aspects of the law. The universal moral law written on the hearts of all mankind. The moral law written on the two uh, stone tablets. He was submissive under the judicial or what we would call the civil law. He was submissive to the ceremonial laws. And again, the office of mediator is set within a a legal framework. The confession is simply acknowledging that Christ subjected himself under the whole law. And paragraph 4 says, to discharge it, he was born under the law and perfectly fulfilled it. He also experienced the punishment that we deserve and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. He took our place. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. Oftentimes we think about Christ in, in wrong ways when we think that uh, what it meant that Christ was both God and man was that he was just God but he put on flesh and bones but everything inside of him was full deity. That's not really how it works. He had a human body and a human soul. And so the sufferings that he took on his flesh was was on his body and was also sufferings in his soul. This is what it meant to be fully submitted and fully qualified as a fit representative, to to, to receive all the consequences of, of what we were supposed to receive as lawbreakers, even though he never broke a law. So we see that he was made subject to it in two ways. First, he perfectly fulfilled the law. This means that the covenant of works was perfectly fulfilled for us in Christ. That which Adam failed to do, Christ was able to do perfectly. 
We know from Scripture that Adam and his race utterly failed to keep the law in thought, word, and deed. But here we see that Jesus kept the law perfectly in thought, word, and deed. That's amazing. Christ kept not merely the letter of the law externally, but he fulfilled it from the heart. And he did so according to the heart and substance of the law. So when it came to uh, not committing adultery, he wasn't like, well, as long as I don't touch a woman. No, he, he, he kept that even in his mind. He didn't commit adultery. He was pure all the way deep into his mind and in his conscience. Christ's perfect obedience was in place of our disobedience, a substitutionary obedience. In justification, the elect person receives by faith, by that instrument of faith, Christ's righteousness. His perfect obedience is credited to ours. So we are being treated like we lived Christ's life. That's amazing news. Now, apart from that, we're out of luck. We're the first ones to help. But because Christ imputed his righteousness to us, God is counting us as perfect. And that's why we sing praises on Sunday, because we know we totally don't deserve that. I mean, if you look at your week alone, I'm, I'm thinking about myself. This week alone, I, I can count how many times I've failed the Lord. Yet I can come into the worship service praising God, thanking him, that God is seeing me as he sees his son. And that's only if you have faith, you receive that gift. You receive that, um, that into your account. The second way he was subject to the law was by his passive obedience, which refers to the penal or punitive or punishment aspect of the law. Christ received the penal aspect of the law from God as if he broke it. This is where we read uh, in this paragraph that he experienced the punishment that we deserve and that we should have endured and suffered. He was made sin and a curse for us. And we deserve God's just wrath. The punishment due to us for breaking God's law. We should have received it. But Christ suffered that punishment in our place. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. A.A. Uh, a. Hodge has a commentary on the Westminster Confession, which uh, a lot of what we're reading in our confession is, is the same. Uh, he states, he says this, All his earthly career, speaking about Christ, was in one aspect suffering, in another aspect obedience. As suffering, it was vicarious endurance of the penalty of sin. As obedience, it was a discharge of the stead on and on behalf of his people of that condition upon which their eternal inheritance is suspended. The two were never separated, in fact. They are only the two legal aspects presented by the same life of suffering obedience. So the confession continues by stating how he suffered. It goes on to say, he endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul and extremely painful sufferings in his body. Christ's sorrows in his soul and the sufferings in his body occurred to him because he became a curse for us. Now, I'll put it in more practical terms. When you sin against God, if you're a Christian, you, you know what this feels like. When you sin against God, in your soul, you feel a, 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 not necessarily a separation, but you lose the sense of communion with God. You feel like you and God are not doing too good today. Now, it doesn't mean that the reality is true. We know that if you're in Christ... 
you know, you and God have been reconciled. But the sense of it, you, you feel it, it's in your soul. Uh, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Christ had to face that in his soul. Uh, Christ had to face a departure from that communion uh, with God as if he were guilty of all of our sins put together. He received that. He bore that in his soul. He endured extremely heavy sorrows in his soul. Christ's sorrows in his soul and the suffering in his body occurred to him because he became a curse for us. Christ redeems both soul and body. And so it was necessary that Jesus would suffer both in his soul and his body. Calvin says that to view the atonement only in a bodily sense is to think that Christ died only to save your body. In these sorrows in soul and painful sufferings in his body, Christ discharges the passive obedience aspect of his office as mediator. Christ essentially faced hell in his soul. This is where we read, oftentimes we recite some of the older uh, creeds where it says, uh, and he descended to hell. Doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, but he, uh, on our behalf, he, 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 in his soul, he bore the punishment that we would have received as we would suffer in hell. And so he received that in his soul. Also, the torment of his body. And he did this on our behalf. He was then crucified, and after Christ's death, the confession states that he remained in the state of death. The state of death means the situation, location, condition of the body and the soul at death. There are a bunch of views on the state of death while his body remained in the tomb. But to discuss that is kind of beyond our scope. But the confession simply states that after Christ's death, he remained in that state of, of, dead, of, of death. The confession makes a rather general statement, and it doesn't go into any details on the conditions of his body, although we see prophecy in the Psalms that speak on, on Christ not undergoing decay. <clears throat> uh, and you see that in the confession, where it says, yet his body did not decay. You see this in Psalm 16.10, where it says, for you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. And even though this was a Psalm of David, this is a typological prophecy of Christ's resurrection spoken by David. And in Acts, we see this prophecy spoken of in the past tense. And this is how we know it's, it's typological. In Acts 13, 37, uh, it says, But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. And you see uh, the writer of Acts referring to this passage in, in uh, the psalm and applying that to Christ. The term corruption refers to the decaying process of Christ's body. The point is that Christ's death was not permanent, and in fact his body was not dead hardly long enough to undergo decay before it was raised. On the third day, he was already out of the grave. Uh, in summary, uh, paragraph 4 addresses Christ's state of humiliation, which is defined by the uh, Baptist Catechism as his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God and the curse, uh, cursed death of the cross in being buried and continuing under the power 
of death for a time. Uh, for the sake of time, let's, uh, let's go ahead and look at paragraph five, just to kind of get the ball rolling. Yes, please. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, let's see. Are you referring to 1 Corinthians uh, 15? Is it 14 through 22? Let's back up here. No. Okay, you think it's that one? I'll back up one more. Oh, okay. It was probably one that I mentioned. Okay. Yeah, I can, I can look at it. Okay, let me know. Okay. Okay, let's look at uh, paragraph five. Can someone read that? Lord Jesus has for himself satisfied the justice of God, obtained reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. He has accomplished these things by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. Thank you. So this paragraph uh, tells us what the end is, or what the ends are. In other words, what is the extent of what was accomplished by the obedience and sacrifice of Christ? What was the extent? What exactly did he purchase? Well, Scripture teaches, number one, that he has fully satisfied the justice of his Father. Right? God is just. Therefore, Justice is essential to God as a moral governor. And upon the entrance of sin, when sin entered the world, it became necessary for God to exercise his justice. Right? God was holy. He was, he's perfect. When sin entered the world, he has to respond according to his nature. And God being a just God requires him to act justly to do something about the crime. It's like, uh, it's like when you go to court, and I, I use this example all the time, when you go to court and someone commits a horrible crime, like murdering children, and because we have this false idea of God often that he's just always merciful, and he, he's not just, <laughs> oh, he's a loving God. Well, these things are true. He is a loving God. But imagine God just letting people slide with their sin. It's like a judge. You know, uh, someone commits murder, and uh, he's just a gracious judge. He's just like, eh, just don't worry about it. You know, we'll, we'll make more kids. You know, it, someone in the audience is going to yell and scream, this is unjust. There's something innate in us, uh, the way that God created us. We have desires to see justice in this world. And, and the reason for that is because our creator is just. That's not a good judge or a fair judge. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah, so we see, we, we, we see that uh, aspect of God. We see that as essential to who God is. And when sin entered the world, God has to exercise justice. And Christ, as the Savior, to those whom the Father had given unto him, made complete satisfaction to God's divine justice by enduring in our place the very punishment which we as sinners deserve. So think about this. When it comes to justice and punishment, all that has been taken care of 
on your behalf. You know, it's like uh, when you get your bill at the end of the uh, dinner that you have, and, and then you see on the bottom someone already paid for it, you're clear, you're, you're free to go. This is what Christ did. When it comes to justice, Christ received the penalty. He took it for you. Hebrews 9, let me fast forward here. Hebrews 9.26 says, For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So it's done. There's nothing left. He took it on himself completely. We see also in Daniel 9.24 that it was prophesied that a complete atonement of sin would come for the people of God. Can someone read uh, Daniel 9.24? Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Thank you. Yeah, so Christ's sufferings as our Savior possessed everything required for a true and complete satisfaction of our sin. He suffered the wrath of God, which was meant for us. He suffered in the same nature of those who actually sinned, which is to say that he suffered as a human being in every way without cheating, right? Many people have disregarded the sufferings of Christ by undermining his hardships and consider Christ's sufferings as light work to Christ, being that he's God, and saying, Saying, saying it as if Jesus didn't undergo real pain. However, you should never make that mistake. Jesus lived as a man with a real body and a real soul. He suffered as a man. Christ as a man was committed to walking righteously before God the Father and was as dependent on walking by the Spirit as we would have to be today. It wasn't a cakewalk. And even in his crucifixion, he had to endure pain as a man. And in this way, he was able to be our fit representative. That the sacrifice of Christ was fully uh, satisfactory to divine justice, that can't be questioned. An apostle testifies that the sacrifice which he offered up was a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. You see this in Ephesians 5.2. Christ himself announced that the satisfaction of God's divine justice was complete when on the cross he proclaimed, it is finished. And even more than that, we have a more decisive proof of, of satisfaction of his justice in his sacrifice and in his resurrection from the dead and his exaltation in heaven. Uh, you know, when we think about the resurrection, which we're, we're going to be coming, it's, it's coming soon. We have uh, Easter coming up where we... Uh, where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection is the proof that what Christ did, beginning with his humiliation, coming down to earth, uh, living under the law and living under it perfectly, uh, being obedient, and then also enduring the suffering that he was called to endure on our behalf, the cross, and then dying on the cross. All that was for us. How do we know that it worked? That it, if, if it worked, he raises from the grave in a glorious state. If it doesn't work, he dies and he stays in the grave. Um, 
He may come to some point of resurrection, but it would be a resurrection of corruption, as many in the future will be resurrected, but be resurrected in bodies of corruption. Yeah, Christ resurrected. Witnesses saw him. Uh, he he uh, received the glorified body. Not only that, but God exalted him at the right hand. The transaction was complete. And this is proof that the, uh, the mission was complete and the justice was satisfied completely. The paragraph goes on to say that he obtained reconciliation. This necessarily flows from the former. For if justice is fully satisfied, then God's wrath against his elect must be turned away. It is sin which separates us and God, and therefore Christ made reconciliation by satisfying divine justice for sin, that which was the reason why we were separated. So in Christ solving the issue of sin, now our relationship with God is is good. He's reconciled us because the one thing that stood in between us and God was sin. And so he obtained reconciliation. Uh, We see Romans 5.10 say, For if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So from this, however, it by no means means That the elect are in a state of actual reconciliation either from the time of Christ's death or from the first moment of their own existence. In other words, you technically aren't reconciled right from birth, right? Just because you happen to be someone that God before the foundations of the world saw you and elected you. The scripture represents us as being by nature children of wrath. A sure foundation for reconciliation was laid by the death of Christ, but we're only actually reconciled to God the moment we place our faith in Christ and his work. So even though we know that God is sovereign and he, he elects, right? Nothing, nothing is new to him. He knew who would be saved. doesn't mean you were born saved. It means that you're not saved until the moment that you come to Christ. That very moment is when your relationship with God is reconciled. We also see in the confession that Christ purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. So, the, uh, the, the sum total of the Christian life is not that you get this free ticket to, to heaven or that you know now it, you're reconciled with God and that's the end of the story. There's more to it. There was, Christ accomplished much in in the cross. Uh, in that passage where it says, perch, uh, that part of the uh, paragraph where it says, purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father, here we see that he purchased for his elect an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven. Christ not only sustained the full infliction of the penalty of the law to obtain his people deliverance from condemnation, but also He perfectly fulfilled its precepts to procure for them a title to the eternal inheritance. So there's, in a sense, uh, certain things that you are given and entitled to, not by your own merit, but for the mere fact that you're in Christ. And I'll go on to explain. This is to say that by by Christ being obedient, 
Christ himself gets rewards appointed to him by the Father in the covenant that he had with the Father, the covenant of redemption. And we know from Scripture that the Father promised that Christ would be king over all the elect. Not merely among the Jews, but also the Gentiles. And we see this in Psalm 2, 6 through 8. It says, Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Ask me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance, and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. So you see, Christ is inheriting something. He becomes king, and he inherits a people, and, and uh, the, uttermost, the uttermost parts of the earth for his own possession. You also see Psalm 72, 8 through 11, he shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river unto the ends of the earth, all nations shall serve him. These are things that are given to, to Christ by virtue of his accomplishing the plan of redemption. So in these passages, we see that Jesus purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those given to him by the Father. And he has accomplished these things, you see this in the passage, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he once, uh, he, he for all offered, I'm sorry, he once for all offered up to God through the eternal spirit. What does that mean? That means that everything that Christ gained from his accomplishment of redemption is given to us. All of that is given to us as well by virtue of our union with Christ. Okay, uh, let's look at uh, paragraph six. Can someone read paragraph six? paid by Christ till after his incarnation. Yet the virtue efficacy, efficacy mm -hmm. and benefit of it was imparted to the elect in every age since the beginning of the world and in, in, in and by those promises, types and sacrifices that revealed him and pointed to him as the seed that would bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. He is the same yesterday Thank you. Um, this is pretty simple to understand. Uh, this section, <coughs> this paragraph, speaks on the reality that even though many people existed before the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, there were people born before him, his work was still effectual to them, right? It was a, his work was still effectual to those people before Christ. Many have wondered how were people who existed before Christ how were they saved, right? The answer is the same way we are now, faith in Christ. In other words, for example, David, after sinning with Bathsheba, had cried in repentance to God, and God forgave David. But how was he forgiven? Why didn't God just punish him and do justice, right? Well, God forgave David on the basis of Christ's shed blood, right? Even though his blood was not yet shed. And David believed in the forgiveness of God by trusting that God would provide forgiveness through providing a lamb at some point. And so even though at least 4,000 years elapsed before Jesus actually appeared in the flesh and put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, Christ was in a real way known. And, and Christ was preached. And he was revealed from the beginning of the world, even in the garden. 
He was revealed in promises. He was revealed in predictions. He was revealed in types. And believers under the Old Testament were saved by the merit of his sacrifice, as well as those under the New Testament. Sort of like a down payment. Abraham rejoiced to see his day. We see this in the scriptures. And Abraham was justified by faith in him. His death is not more efficacious now, nor will it be more efficacious later on than it was before. And we read this in Hebrews 13, 8, where it says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. What he accomplished applies to anyone before him and anyone after him. Let's move on to paragraph 7. Can someone read paragraph 7? Thank you. Uh, This is an interesting paragraph, actually. If you remember from last week, uh, last week under paragraph two, we discussed that Jesus was truly man and he was truly God. Uh, yet, Yet he was still one person, right? We also discussed that these two natures remained one person, yet distinct and unchanged in his divinity, and also in his humanity, without any mixture. I gave the illustration of uh, Nestle Quick. <laughs> you have milk, right? And you put Nestle Quick, like chocolate quick, and you stir it up, it, you stir it up and it becomes something else, right? It's no longer 100% milk. It's, it's no longer pure powdered chocolate. It's chocolate milk. That's not what happened <laughs> in the incarnation. Uh, Jesus, his... Uh, his humanity and divinity didn't mix to become some sort of demigod. His humanity was 100% in every way, and his divinity was 100% in every way. And again, if, if any human element entered into his divinity, then he would be no divinity at all. He would, be, he would not be divine in any way. It would be tainted. It would be distorted. Same goes with, with his human nature. They were 100% on both sides. Yet, in their union, they were one person, the God-man Christ Jesus. Now, in this paragraph, what the statement uh, in, the, in the confession is doing is basically reiterating what the uh, uh, Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian Creed has already stated. Uh, By the way, the Chalcedonian Creed is a 5th century creed that defines the relationship between the two natures in one person, the person of Christ. And what this paragraph is acknowledging is that the two natures are distinct, acting in their appropriate functions without mixture. Yet, sometimes in scripture, one attribute belonging to one of the natures of Christ is spoken in a way designated to the one person of Jesus Christ. Let me get... Uh, So... Uh, For example, a man might say that the divine Son of God resisted temptation. Think about that statement. The divine Son Son of God resisted temptation. Does that make sense? Uh, Does the divine Son of God resist temptation? Does God resist temptation? Well, we know that uh, 
deity, God, does not resist temptation. Uh, we see it in James 1.13 that God cannot be tempted. He, can't, he, doesn't, he doesn't need to resist temptation. He's not tempted. Yet to say that the divine Son of God resisted temptation, it's proper to speak that way as long as we remember the nature of the divine and the human categories. As long as we understand that, it's, it's okay to say uh, the Son of God underwent suffering. Another example. Uh, here at Faith Baptist, we sing the song, And Can It Be? Do you guys know that song? And can it be? It's a song by Charles Wesley. <coughs> it's a hymn. It's one of my favorite hymns. And some people object to that hymn, right? Uh, you guys remember the refrain, Amazing love, how can it be That thou, my God, should die for me? God dying? God died for me? They would, people would object to that and say, God is eternal and immortal. So why are we saying that thou, my God, uh, should die for me? Since when does God die, right? Well, we know that that's poetry. That's not straightforward. Uh, that wasn't written as a straight document of strict theology. So we can understand that the distinct, we can understand the distinct categories of the divine and human natures. And I, I think, in my opinion, it's completely appropriate to sing that song. It's completely appropriate to uh, attribute one of the natures to the one person of Christ. So to say that Christ is God, that's perfectly fine. To say that Christ is man, that's perfectly fine. I think it, as long as we understand those two distinctions. And this paragraph in the confession is basically stating that oftentimes in scripture, you see uh, when, spoke, when speaking about Jesus, um, certain words that are being used as characteristics of Jesus sometimes speak of his divine nature and sometimes speak of his human nature. And it's perfectly fine as long as we are able to distinguish uh, the, the, the two natures. Uh, this is why we can rightly say that Jesus is God. Now, what we can't do is designate one attribute of one nature to the other nature. I'll give you an example. If we say that Christ's human nature was five feet and eight inches, he was five foot eight, we can't say that God, uh, Christ's divine nature is five foot eight, right? Does that make sense? You with me? So Jesus, the man, was, let's just say, five foot eight. We can't say that his divinity or his divine nature was five foot eight. That doesn't make any sense. As long as we distinguish the two, the divine nature can't be five foot eight. Anyway, moving on. Um, let's look at paragraph eight. Can someone read? I can see, I can see all the stuff about Christ being five eight, but I can see that coming out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. That's going to haunt me. Uh, Lucy, you had a question. Oh, gotcha. Actually, this is the last slide from a previous point, which I was... It's okay. Good question, though. <laughs> this actually has nothing to do with it. <laughs> uh, but, no, I'm glad you asked. I, I hope no one was confused about that. Uh, this is... These passages are referring specifically to um, the inheritance that Christ receives, which is also ours, you know, in, uh, in Christ. But again, uh, does anyone have any questions regarding the two natures...
and uh, how it's pro uh, perfectly appropriate to say that Jesus is God, um, but it's not appropriate to say that Jesus is five foot eight and his divinity is five foot eight. Go ahead. Well, it seems like the Catholic thing where they say that Mary was the mother of God. Right. But, yeah, she was like literally the mother of divine nature. That's right. And so as Protestants, we would reject that, and we would say that that's, that's not accurate. Now, they would probably explain it the way that we would, um, but we would probably be a lot more careful in showing those distinctions. So we would not say that, you know. And, yeah, but, and, and then the references that are given here, though, you've got Acts 20, 28, right, mm -hmm. where it talks about God's blood. I mean, it, it, the Scripture itself does use the, yeah. like you were saying before, that they, it was, does use the terms of one Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's a perfect example. Yeah, and that's exactly what the past. That's what the paragraph is speaking about. It's saying that in Scripture, oftentimes you'll see uh, when referring to Christ, uh, something that is attributed to one nature, but really should be attributed to the other. But as long as we have those categories and understand those categories, there's no issue. So the reverse of this, then, with the Catholic Church, instead of um, the Mother of God, you've got Christ. Yeah. So it's it's a, it's an attribute we give to Christ because he has those two, but not to a human being who had a relationship. That that's right. Yeah, that's right. And you know, although we if if you know, and again, it's a language thing. We want to make sure that those things are clear because uh, there's already confusion about the natures of of Christ and you know how that even works, but. Um, so I think an effort to make those things clear, it's important to show those distinctions. Even though when we see it or hear it, even when we read it in scripture, it's, it's, it's appropriate. Yeah. Got to move on. Let's look at uh, paragraph 8. Someone read paragraph 8. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. He intercedes for them unites them to himself by his spirit and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any consideration for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. Thank you. <clears throat> so in, uh, in, in, this in the fifth paragraph, actually, we were taught that Christ purchased redemption only for those whom the Father had given unto him. And here it's asserted that to all those whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. Uh, this is to say, uh, this really speaks on the reality that the purchase and application of redemption are exactly of the same extent. This is to say that the exact number of people whom he died for will be the exact number who will eventually be saved. Uh, it's a particular atonement. Um, it, it, it's not uh, that Christ died for everyone in the whole world and you know we read in Revelation that people are going to hell so we find out already 
in the Bible that, that Christ dying for everyone in the whole world doesn't actually mean that everyone is, is going to be saved. We would ha- if, if, we, if we believe that, we would have to conclude that some of the blood of Christ was, in a sense, wasted or in vain. God forbid. The Bible teaches that his work on the cross, his, uh, his sacrifice, his bloodshed, um, atoned for the exact number of the people who would or who will eventually come to faith. It was exact. Wish I could dive more into it, but um, I would say read, study this, this paragraph, and it tells you not only that uh, Christ died for the exact number, but he also, it also explains how he applies that work uh, to the specific number of the elect. And you you kind of get that um, in that paragraph. Uh, Peter? And that's a very important point because uh, in the context of the covenant of redemption, if this was a covenant between the Father and the Son, the Father is giving to the Son a people and for the Father at the end to only give him some of that number is, is a ripoff. <laughs> and we know that that's not, that's not consistent with the character of God. Yeah. And it's all people's, all, all kinds of Yeah, that's right. That's a good point. I know there's passages that kind of confuse people in thinking every person, but it's actually referring to all peoples of all nations. You know, so. Moving along. Let's look at uh, paragraph nine. Am I in nine or? Yes. Uh, let's see. Actually, no, I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, let's, let's go to paragraph nine, just for the sake of time. This office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Thank you. Uh, interesting, interestingly, this paragraph and the next one is not seen in the Westminster Confession. And after reading these paragraphs, you can see why it was important, especially for particular Baptists of the 17th century. This paragraph emphasizes the fact that the scriptures do not support any present office of mediator to anyone except the exalted Christ, right? This goes for prophet, this goes for priests, and this goes for kings in any, in any mediatory uh, function. Now, I'm not an expert in Roman Catholic theology, but I would be suspicious about some of their ecclesiastical offices uh, when it comes to s- some of the things that are mentioned here. And we see a pushback from the Baptists saying, no, this is... Those offices don't exist. There's only one mediator, one prophet, one priest, one king, that's Christ. No man acting vicariously for Christ. This is, uh, this is strictly the office of Christ. And then finally, let's look at paragraph 10. 
and then I'll, I'll quickly summarize it and we'll close. The number and character of these offices is essential because we are ignorant, we need his prophetic office. Because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our service, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. Because we are hostile and utterly unable to return to God, and so that we can be rescued and made secure for, from our spiritual enemies, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, sustain, deliver, and preserve us for his heavenly kingdom. Yes. Yeah, so this concept of prophet, priest, and king has always been understood by, by the reformers, and we can trace it back all the way to the 4th century with uh, Eusebius. Uh, but we read the office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone, who is prophet, who is priest, and who is king of the church of God. So quickly, Deuteronomy 18 speaks of Christ as prophet. It says, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. See that prophet element where Christ is coming and speaking the words of God. He is the revelation of God's word to us. Um, we see this aspect of priest <clears throat> uh, where our confession says, because we are alienated from God and imperfect in the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and present us to God as acceptable. In Romans, uh, let's go Romans 5.10, it says, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. And so you, you think about the priestly work of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, well, now we have the priestly work in Christ where he himself laid his life down for us. So he is our priest. In him, we have reconciliation with God. And finally, Christ is the king. Christ is the king ruling over all things. Over his church, he reigns by the means of his Holy Spirit. Again, quoting uh, from uh, another creed, actually uh, the Orthodox uh, Catechism, which is a Baptist catechism. It says that he is our eternal king who governs us by his word and spirit, who defends and preserves us in the enjoyment of that salvation he has purchased for us. And so uh, I'll conclude with a quote by Calvin. He says, We may patiently pass through this life with its miseries, cold, contempt, reproaches, and other troubles, content with this one thing, that our king will never leave us destitute, but will provide for us needs until our warfare ended, we are called to triumph. And see those encouraging words. And Calvin understood that office of, king, of kingship in Christ. And so again, he's our mediator because he fills the, the role of prophet, of priest, and of king. In conclusion, if you're an unbeliever, this may mean nothing to you. <laughs> but if you're born again and are a child of God, Christ in, these three, in this threefold office, prophet, priest, and king, would mean the world to you, right? You should ask yourself, is he prophet in your life? Does he teach you the words of God? Or is, are you following the teachers of the world? Is he your high priest who has sacrificed himself for you and intercedes for you and blesses you with his spirit? Or are you following the spirit of the age? And finally, do you acknowledge Christ's kingship and lordship? Or are you ruled by your own will and desires? If Christ is yours, he is your prophet, he is your priest, and he is your king. 
And again, for a believer, he is, he is our all. Um, and so let's meditate on that. Um, I have to close. But uh, any, any other comments or anything? Uh, feel free to come with me afterwards. Okay. All right. Let me go ahead and pray. Our Father, we thank you. Um, we praise you for Christ and the sufficiency of work. He alone is our salvation. And so I pray that we would mediate or meditate, excuse me, we meditate daily on the richness of all of his accomplishments and that love that he had for us as he endured the penalty of sin upon himself. Lord, may our days be filled with praises of gratitude towards him. And we thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thanks, y'all.